Hey everyone, Jim Rohner here, uh, your very tall and resident bad movie doer host of I Do Movies Badly, just reminding you that if you were not uh, listening to the end of last week's episode on Harold Lloyd's The Freshman, this is a reminder that I am not doing any new episodes during March. I am taking a bit of a hiatus because I have a lot of stuff going on, uh, but I did want to make sure that there were things filling up your podcast feed while I was uh, away and otherwise occupied, um, so I decided to do... Um, kind of a re-release of some of my favorite episodes, specifically my favorite kind of conversational episodes of the past of I Do Movies Badly, um, to, uh, to, to kind of give you something to wet your whistle or appease your appetite or any other um, alliterative actions that would basically uh, fulfill the obligation of me putting out something weekly that hopefully you have and or will enjoy. Um, uh, I, I want to do this because these were things that I loved reminiscing uh, about and doing while I was doing them, and also just kind of wanted to, once again, make sure that you had something every week that you can kind of engage with and uh, revisit um, and hopefully enjoy as I have been doing it. Um, this one is the most recent one that I've done. Uh, this podcast or this episode that I'm putting out is the conversation I had with uh, New York-based filmmaker Sean Meehan uh, that I... Uh, talked with him about uh, the films of Guillermo del Toro. This was the first episode back for I Do Movies Badly after I had um, quit and taken a long break and had returned to it. So it might have been a little bit rough in terms of the conversation, but I think the content was great. Um, and it certainly helped inspire more of a newfound appreciation in me for Guillermo del Toro, not just the, some of the stuff that I hadn't seen before, although all three of these films, uh, The Devil's Backbone, Crimson Peak, and Kronos, I had seen before, but some of them I hadn't seen in a while, and one of them, Crimson Peak, I had foolishly written off and disliked when I first saw it. So this one, um, even though it is the most recent, it is the one at the forefront of my mind because I just got done watching um, AMC's um, Eli uh, Roth's History of Horror, which was um, a, a kind of mini-doc series uh, that is now streaming exclusively on Shutter, and there was an episode about monsters uh, in which Guillermo del Toro's name was uh, obviously quite heavily quoted and his films quite heavily referenced. So that is at the front of my mind, and so I wanted to kind of put that one out first um, because I, I enjoyed it, and it seemed like based on the, re the response and reaction, um, everyone enjoyed it as well. So once again, it was sort of a revisiting of The Devil's Backbone, Crimson Peak, and Kronos, all films that I had seen before, uh, but certainly thanks to the conversation that I had with Sean and kind of the things that I took with me kind of gave me a new appreciation for the stuff of his that I had seen, specifically kind of uh, seeing where his, his color palette came from, his attitude towards ghosts and monsters and undead things, um, you know, the gothic horror of Crimson Peak, the, the sympathetic ghosts. Um, in them as well as the the, the ghost in, in the devil's backbone and certainly um, starting or ending on Kronos which is uh, oddly enough the, the film that he started his entire career on which is sort of a, a fun uh, twist or take on uh, the vampire mythos which has been uh, with us for literally for generations so hopefully you, go, uh, you all enjoyed it when it was out um, hopefully you can enjoy it again if you need something to listen to and if you are a new listener I certainly hope that um, you enjoy this episode, and I would encourage you to also check out the individual episodes and in all three films after you got done with this. So thanks a lot for listening, everyone, and on with the show. Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. 
I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that Consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. For listeners who are new to the show, or returning listeners, because I, I, I took a year off and now I'm back, uh, at the top of every month I'll choose a filmmaker or genre of which I am woefully oblivious and discuss the significance and impact of said filmmaker or genre with a guest, who will then recommend me three titles which I will then watch and report back on. This month, if you've been paying attention to the Facebook page, and I could understand if you haven't because it's been a year, uh, we're covering, the, or I'm going to explore some films from Guillermo del Toro. Uh, and joining me to discuss is a New York based filmmaker, Sean Meehan, who for the past, what, four years, I've been calling Meehan. It's fine. I'm kind of used to most people getting it wrong, <laughs> so I just, I'll, I'll take pretty much any name. I answered everything. Mm-hmm. Well, Sean, you have uh, not just glasses. But you also have a lot of pressure on you because this is my first episode back in over a year, and you're the guest that I chose to to be on here. But weirdly, I'm most nervous that you called out my glasses, so <laughs> that's the only thing I'm going to be thinking about for the next what hour and a half. <laughs> right. um, Sean, uh, with or without glasses, looks a little bit like Charlie Hunnam, which is going to be obviously relevant to this conversation. I'm assuming. I prefer undercooked Ryan Gosling, but sure. Yeah, I can, I can see that one too. All right. Well, <laughs> severely undercooked. Um. <laughs> well, Sean, uh, I guess everyone knows we're going to be talking about Guillermo del Toro already, mm-hmm. but we want to talk about you first, Sean. Okay. So I don't know. Talk a little bit about anything you want. I mean, what you know, your work, what you do, what you like doing, how you got into filmmaking. You know, the, the guests, the guests. Sorry, the listeners. They want to. They want to hear about you. They already know everything about me. Sure. Um, so yeah, as, um, as you mentioned, uh, I'm a New York based filmmaker. Uh, I do a lot of corporate and commercial work. Um, that's usually in the realm of either directing or as a cinematographer, uh, I do a little bit of motion graphics and like most other people in, uh, in Brooklyn, especially, but New York, greater New York as a whole, uh, filmmaker is a broad term that encompasses doing anything you can that involves a camera near a person and getting paid for it. <laughs> uh, sometimes paid for it. <laughs> And not paid well for it. No, so it depends. Okay. You know, not not every client. Some some are better than others. <laughs> um, and now uh, everyone has that one movie that when they saw it was like this is something I want to do, or, or or that kind of sparked that creative thing in you. What was that movie for you? It's a good question. Um, a couple come to mind, and they're all a little weird. Uh, I got really serious about filmmaking once I got to college, mm-hmm. and I didn't go to a a school that was necessarily known for like a filmmaking program. Uh, I went to Boston College, which is a great school, um, but had more of like a film studies background. So uh, my intro to filmmaking was really just taking some film theory classes Mm. and uh, watching some like old screwball comedies and stuff. The first first course I took was American film genre. So Mm. it was kind of going through screwball comedies and westerns. Um, but my parents got very excited when I told them what I wanted to do and they were very supportive from the beginning. Uh, and so they bought me a bunch of old box sets of old DVDs <laughs> and weirdly the movie Harvey sticks out as something that just like really Jimmy yeah, Stewart with the Jimmy, imaginary Jimmy, Jimmy rabbit Stewart with the bunny. Huh. And I think, um, part of it at the time might, might've been that, uh, as like a neophyte filmmaker starting to study this, that like the director whose name now escapes me, uh, would frame for the bunny. <laughs> and you know it's a small thing that obviously like anybody who has watched um a lot of movies since then wouldn't think is a big deal but when i'm just getting into it 
you're like, oh, this is what a director does. A director <laughs> realizes that to get into the psyche of the character, we're going to frame for a character that's not there. Hmm. Um, so that was something that was really exciting. I think at the time I was also taking a lot of painkillers because I got my wisdom teeth out. So <laughs> maybe, maybe that's why I love that movie, but I still do. I still love it. Um, but, you know, there have been a lot of, you know, touchstone movies since then, things that have just kind of really either hit me in some way or just those those kind of movies and I'm sure you have some of these too that just for whatever reason just kind of like stick to you almost like a burr like you're walking through bushes and it just gets stuck and you don't know why and it's like it's stuck to my hip and I don't, I don't even know why my hip was near that but mm. it's, it's stuck to me now and Pan's Labyrinth is an example of one that really stuck with me once I finally saw it mm. um, you know movies like In Bruges from Martin McDonough mm. Um, yeah, very strange choices, but they just, they hit me for some reason and just kind of like really grabbed, grabbed in. Mm-hmm. And now before any user tweets at me, which is not ever a concern because nobody tweets at me anyway, uh, the director of Harvey is a guy named Henry Coster. Okay. Coster, K-O-S-T-E-R, uh, who you might know as also, uh, a director of The Bishop's Wife, which I believe was remade into The Preacher's Wife starring Denzel Washington. I could be wrong about that. Okay. Um, but that's... You what is a podcast but not saying facts that may or may not be true? <laughs> We're just supposed to have opinions. That's a very good point. And I have to admit uh, to you, Sean, and to anyone that might be listening to this, I actually forget how my own podcast goes because it's been so long. And even though I told you to do research on past episodes, I didn't listen to any of my own past stuff. So this is... Uh, I could be wildly veering off course or script as I'm talking right now. If you veer off, we'll just do an ad for Casper and we'll be fine. <laughs> You spend one-third of your life in bed. Why not be comfortable? The fact that both of us could make that reference and have specific <laughs> ad reads ready. Right. Like, I could I can do a podcast, or I could do a Pod Save America cash app read <laughs> if I need to. I'm not going to, but I could. Well, it's at the forefront of my mind, because on the way home from work today, I was listening to the WTF episode with Boots Riley. Uh, so, that that is just right there um, because I, I recently... I, last night, I saw Sorry to Bother You, so I, I was... I've been trying to ingest like as many interviews and like insight as I can because I can't wrap my head around that movie just as of right now. I still haven't seen it, but once I do, I really want to hear what you think about it. It's it's bonkers, let's say that. Um, all right, but back to you, Sean, because you're the important one. Oh, you sound like my mom. <laughs> I called her before you showed up to get some tips as to how to interview you. But um, so you, you kind of talked about what what sort of incited you or inspired you, but in in your work now. Uh, what, what filmmakers do you find interesting do you try and draw inspiration from? Or, and, and not even to say that you're like, oh, I want to frame this shot like Roger Deakins, but blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, everyone sort of has those things that, or, or those filmmakers that, like, this is an aesthetic or this is an idea that I, I really love. I mean, I, I know off – I was about to say off camera. There is no camera here. Off mic, you and I have talked a lot about Reed Moreno because that's a – you know, you're a big fan of, of Reed. But any, any anything else or anything that comes to mind for you? Sure. So I, I think that um... – you know there are there are filmmakers who are certainly common, but doesn't mean that they're not great. Um, I think that the way that, for instance, I think a lot about how the Coen Brothers, uh, how they film dialogue and how they how they structure dialogue scenes, um, the ways that they make them compelling, the ways that they act, where they place the camera, um, how they sit in a dialogue scene is really interesting, uh, and is something that I mean, just you know, anecdotally, right now I have a short film that I wrote that we're going to shoot in like a month or so. And it's just two characters talking, and uh, I'm thinking a lot about like, you know, how the Coen Brothers use the space of of a scene between two characters and what they do with it. Um, so they're fascinating to me. Um, uh, 
I do Guillermo del Toro is up there in terms of certain qualities of what he does and mostly just the passion and, and the um, the gusto that he puts into his own work. Like it, it, he he will never be called for phoning it in. And it's very clear that he does not care whether or not you like his movie. It's <laughs> it's his favorite movie until he's made his next one. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really important. I think that as a self-deprecating person, as a creative, as a filmmaker who spends a lot of time up in my own head. Mm-hmm. Um, convincing myself that something may not be good enough or isn't worth doing, uh, reminding yourself that you should be your own biggest fan. You can be your own critic and your own biggest fan at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I think that Guillermo del Toro really does um, exhibit is that like he pushes himself constantly and he pushes the people around him. But it's so very clear that when he releases a movie, he's like, I love this thing, except for Mimic. But, you know, <laughs> that's that's not his fault. Yeah. Factors uh, beyond his control. Sure. Um, but in general, um, it's just so clear that he loves whatever he's doing. And I think that's really important to keep in mind because you can bum yourself out if you are either constantly comparing yourself to others or comparing your work to your aspirations for what your work should be. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that can bum a lot of people out. So as a filmmaker, I think about that a lot. Um, other people, um, you mentioned Reed Morano. I think Reed Morano, who started as a cinematographer and is now moving, uh, into directing, Mm -hmm. uh, I think that she... Uh, she has such an interesting visual approach and whether or not she is shooting her own material, sometimes she does, sometimes she doesn't. Um, it just has a very immediate, uh, and specific gaze. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's not even really an allusion to the female gaze, but just her point of view is very specific. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's something that I kind of aspire to as somebody who shoots for a lot of other people is like a competent cinematographer who also directs, um, being able to uh, imbue uh, a film with that kind of visual um, specificity, um, whether or not you're the person that's operating the camera, is something that's really intriguing to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then just to throw one more in, uh, Nuri Bilgajelan is like one of my favorite international filmmakers, mm-hmm. the Turkish filmmaker. Right. His movies are exceptionally long <laughs> and really ponderous and beautiful and amazing. Um, but those are the kind of movies that are only really for like cinephiles like if i made my dad watch that movie he would make me change careers he'd be like you got to be a stockbroker mm-hmm. now if and i'm sorry the the director's name again one more time uh nuri bilga yeah who when i reached out to sean initially that, that's who you suggested and i thought maybe it was a little bit too esoteric for my first time uh back after a year but now if 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 this filmmaker and bellatar were going to have a a, a competition as to who can be more ponderous and esoteric who do you think would win they would both agree that a competition is unnecessary and <laughs> un, and not fitting of humans and instead they should just sit across the table and talk to each other <laughs> and film it all in one glorious long take and it's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen i have a lot of thoughts about nuri bilga jaylon so maybe um <laughs> w- when this episode is met with rapturous reviews and <laughs> sure. we launch to the itunes top list mm-hmm. i'll come back for four-hour movies about hopelessness and sadness oh sound good sound good yeah That's, that sounds wonderful um side note too uh i really Really want Criterion to put out uh, Workmeister Harmonies. Yes. But that's neither here nor there. Um, one more question before we kind of get into Game of Toro, because sure. I guess that's what we're here for. But as someone who both has directed and also just shot, I'm curious to kind of get your opinion on sort of like the different approach to that where it's like something you want to shoot versus someone telling you this is how to shoot and how you kind of balance that. Because it is somewhat relevant to this conversation, because especially uh, Game of Toro's longtime cinematographer, Game Navarro, then kind of branched off and became his own director. 
uh, his own director, which is a weird phrase, but became like a director himself. And right, sort I follow of, you, yeah. Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm always curious as to that dynamic, basically, because you do see a lot of, if there's going to be sort of a, a, a below-the-line crew member that sort of becomes... Or is a DP above the line? I never really know. They're technically age. below, but okay. yeah. But like you, you if it's in all likelihood of a below the line crew member becoming a director, it's typically a DP that you see that, and that sort of makes sense. Yeah, I, so I, I think there's the the relationship between a DP and a director is really, um, it's intimate and it's um, it's it's one of what's I think one of your closest collaborators, especially coming from the point of view of a director. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, um, you know, there are different directors who have different relationships with their cinematographers. You know, I mean, there are whether or not they might be apocryphal stories of Stanley Kubrick that might as well have just shot his own movies. <laughs> um, and those are kind of combative relationships. Sometimes there are people like Jason Reitman who works with Eric Stielberg, mm-hmm. um, but sets every single shot himself with a viewfinder. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are other directors, you know, you take someone like, um, I mean, Woody Allen is one example um, who just sort of let cinematographers, you handle making things visually interesting. I'm going to focus on what's happening in the frame, not what the frame is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I've worked with different um, directors as a cinematographer, that's always a bit of a like, it's it's weird. It's, it's like a it's a first date. But the stakes are very high because usually it's happening in the moment. <laughs> um, I have I have worked on plenty of stuff as a cinematographer where you don't really have the luxury of a lot of pre-production. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's really just like show up to this location, set your camera up, and now we're going to talk about what visuals I have in mind. Mm-hmm. I've had that happen plenty of times. Um, and so it is kind of, it's kind of a negotiation to figure out where do we stand? Like, is this, you know, if you're thinking about someone like Guillermo del Toro, who is very visual who color is super important to, the camera movement is very important to. Um, those conversations are a lot of listening mm-hmm. and a lot of ingesting their ideas and then being the person who may have more experience in the actual execution of what they're asking for. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of like, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you want. I think we can accomplish it this way. But my experience has shown me that if we alter a little bit like this, this might make it a little bit better. Uh, and that's really, a, a, that becomes your job as a cinematographer when you're working with someone who's highly visual and already has a great idea of what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, when I'm directing, I like to collaborate with people um, who have a very strong visual opinion and they want um, key phrases from me and are comfortable with me being pretty close to the camera because because of my background and just being like you know i operate cameras i do all that stuff i have talked with cinematographers that i work with Mm -hmm. about um kind of blending that line a little bit and um not overstepping but like there are going to be times where i actually need to pick up the camera and put it where I think it fits best. Mm-hmm. I think actually, cause Jim, you've worked with me before. <laughs> um, sometimes like I do have to actually find the angle. Like it's, it's not a matter of like, let's just put the tripod here and put somebody for doing an interview and just put somebody there. Mm-hmm. Like maybe you'll see this next time we work together, but like I sometimes have to pick up the camera and walk around a person <laughs> and figure out like, okay, no, no, this is, this is the right spot for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's usually my collaboration with cinematographers when I'm working with them mm-hmm. uh, is we're kind of like a two headed serpent when it comes to the cinematography i have my own opinion about 
lighting and um, color palette and things like that. But my job is mostly to let the people who are way better than me handle all that stuff. <laughs> um, I can chime in if there's something that we're missing, mm-hmm. but I would much rather be surprised by someone else kind of yes anding my ideas mm-hmm. than me saying like, well, you know, if we put if we put the sky panel back there and put it through a six by diffusion, that's what I'm looking for in terms of quality of light. Like, let them do that. Let them in, let them build upon my idea because they're infinitely going to be better. Mm-hmm. And if I ever become a director, I'm going to be far less eloquent than that because I, it, rather than say, hey, let's put the sky panel there, I'll just be like, there's a shadow there. I don't want that. And then I'll, I'll let you handle making sure the shadow is no longer there. As long as you hire crew members that I can roll my eyes to, we're going to be fine. <laughs> I will handle, I, I will hire a crew member specifically for that. Mm-hmm. That all that person does is have you roll your eyes at them. I just need, I need the equivalent of a camera Jim Halper. I just got to turn to somebody, shrug, <laughs> and then get back to work. So, Gamal del Toro. Let's talk about him. Let's do it. Okay. Uh, what was your first exposure to Gamal del Toro? What was it sort of like you saw and like, oh my god, I love this guy or whoever this is? Because I know for a lot of people, their first exposure, whether they were in love with it or not, was Mimic, which as we already kind of talked about, I'm sure everyone is aware of, was deeply problematic. The film got taken away from him by Harvey Weinstein. Um, a worse monster than the monster in Mimic. <laughs> <laughs> Far worse. Both uh, visually and, you know, yeah. psychologically. Um, and so that was sort of, uh, and, and sort of was in danger of sort of derailing uh, his English language career, which was upsetting because he had already kind of established himself with stuff like Kronos and The Devil's Backbone. And so this was supposed to be this new exciting filmmaker coming out, and it was sort of almost like with David Fincher in Alien 3, like almost kind of killed a career before it was able to really begin. But... Me, I know my first exposure to like my the actual first thing I saw from him because between you and me and the listeners, Sean, I still haven't seen Mimic ever. Um, and so my first exposure to him was actually Hellboy, um, which had never seen the comic, had no idea what it, but it was just sort of it, it immediately st- like stood out to me as like this has such a striking look and tone to it. What is this? I want I want to see more of this. So what was it for you? What was it? What was your first exposure to Guillermo del Toro? That sort of like. I want more of this in my life. So I think the 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 first thing, the, my first experience with Guillermo del Toro was basically, um, <laughs> probably like a lot of people, Pan's Labyrinth came out um, just before I got to college. Mm-hmm. And so when I got into filmmaking, um, about a year or so after the movie was released, I was hearing that like, you know, cinephiles and film buffs were into this Pan's Labyrinth movie. <laughs> but at the time, I'm like an 18-year-old I look at the cover and there's like a little girl in a dress and granted there's like some weird imagery, but I'm yeah. like, this looks like a fairy tale. And yeah. then you, you read the back and it's like, it's kind of a fairy tale. Yeah. Uh, so it took me a little time to watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, but finally sitting down and watching Pan's Labyrinth, um, was really my first foray into him. And I think was a good first entry because that is like maybe not quite shape of water might be more, but it's like the most Guillermo del Toro movie. (laughs) Um, you know, he's work, he's operating with, you know, not a, not a huge budget, but like a, a reasonable budget for what, for the kind of stuff that he does. Um, it's really deliberate. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, you know, if I, if I had started with something more like Kronos or, um, maybe not Devil's Backbone because Devil's Backbone is pretty f- well formed as well. Yeah. Um, but specifically something like Kronos, I might have been like, oh, this guy's interesting, but he's like, you know, he's kind of weird. Yeah. But like, uh, Pan's Labyrinth is so specific and rich mm-hmm. and visual and, um, 
you know, we're going to come back to this word a bunch. Uh, he uses it all the time. Instead of eye candy, he says eye protein. So it's, you know, like ev- everything in the frame is is meant to enrich uh-huh. your viewing. Um, and so as like a young, you know, wannabe filmmaker, like that's a movie you watch when you want to be a director. And you're just like, oh, my God, this thing is this. You can pack the frame with information. Mm-hmm. In a really rewarding way. Yeah. Um, and I think around that time, too, he was doing commentaries. I would highly recommend um, a Guillermo del Toro commentary. Mm-hmm. An interview is fine, but a commentary is like a film school all by itself. Yeah. He, he's incredible mm-hmm. on, on mic. Um, so, yeah, it was it was Pan's Labyrinth to start. Um, and then I think I got through. I started going in the realm of like Hellboy. Mm-hmm. Um, I had seen Blade 2 and not realized that that was him because I, I saw it. When I was still in high school, I think. Oh, yeah, I forgot yeah. that you did that one. I, I haven't seen that one either. Oh, Bla- Blade Two is super Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> um, uh, and then slowly like went back, and mm-hmm. then obviously have kept up with him ever since. So once I found him, I kind of grabbed onto his trench coat, yep. and every time he was making a movie, was very excited about it and wanted to see what was coming next. Mm-hmm. Um, and that. that <laughs> You say because I'm I'm trying to picture uh, like of a, a, a young person kind of interested in getting into film and seeing Pan's Labyrinth as like your first thing because that must be so intimidating because as you said that's such like a fully realized film of just sort of like I would argue his masterpiece uh, you know despite the fact that Shape of Water just won a whole bunch of a, a just like has won a whole bunch of Oscars it's still like Pan's Labyrinth is sort of peak Guillermo del Toro and like will he ever get back to that. I we can certainly talk about this a little bit later, but like for me, Del Toro has always been a little bit hit or miss. I either love what he's doing, or I'm just kind of like question why he chose to do that story of anything else. Um, yeah, but Pan's Labyrinth is one of those. I, I don't want to say it's a perfect film. It, it's a little bit problematic, especially in the script level, which a lot of Guillermo del Toro films, if there are problems, it seems to be on the script level because as a director, it's. He, I think we'll talk about this. Yeah, yeah. Okay, because he, he is one of those, um, you know, it's, it's very rare that you can kind of just look at a frame of a movie and be like, I know who directed this based on uh, framing, color palette, how they move the camera, that sort of stuff. Like, you can do that with Wes Anderson, you can do that with ugh, probably Zack Snyder, but like, you can, you know, Guillermo del Toro is one of those guys where it's sort of like, Sam Raimi had that for a while too, where um, I remember, uh, I didn't I didn't see... Oz Great and Powerful, or whatever that... But there's a shot in the trailer where you're like, oh, I know <laughs> this is Sam Raimi. There's Sam Raimi, when, yeah. when, she come, when the hand comes out, right? <laughs> yeah. You're like, when the hand comes yeah. out. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the... I forget, what's the policy with spoilers with uh, with movies on this? Um, I, I mean, if it's going to be a film that we're going to talk about later, then save it for later. Yeah, so it's not one we're going to talk about later. So we're talking still about Pan's Labyrinth. Oh, I, th- yeah, I, I think that, like... Um, there were certain elements that I think the the moment where um, where the captain breaks the the soldier's nose yeah and um, it's it's really specific to Guillermo del Toro and we'll get into this a little bit later too mm-hmm. but I remember watching that and even just something like that usually um, depictions of violence are not really interesting to me sure um, but the the specific way that it's filmed and the way that the the makeup effects blended with whatever CG they were doing, mm-hmm. the way that it's portrayed is so dead specific mm-hmm. that I think that like if you just hired a bunch of directors and had them film a moment of like someone stubbing their toe, mm-hmm. you would know which one was Guillermo del Toro's because it would be a shot that holds for way longer. Mm-hmm. That like you watch their foot crumple and like it doesn't cut away as they pull it back and they try to reset their toes. Like <laughs> it's a very specific thing. Thing, um, 
but again, it, it's um, I don't know it with a lot of his choices. You you already hit on this. They're really I think specific, and I think oftentimes are full of like energy and reverence. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that he like. I don't, I don't, or reverence might not even be the right word, because what I was about to say is I don't think he revels in violence. I don't, I don't think he loves maiming people. I don't think he thinks it's fun. No. I, I think he sees them as, as interesting and brutal moments mm-hmm. that are captured, um, whatever the reality of the world is, they're captured honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas somebody, even like Quentin Tarantino, seems to really just revel in in violence and that's like a fun part of the job for him is like blood spurt and you know arterial squirting and all kinds of crazy stuff yeah well and, and i think it's not that Guillermo del toro enjoys it but i think he is very interested uh in that idea of where people come from and what causes them to act the way they do so like like if it's a scene or a shot where it's like oh you see someone's injured limb and we're gonna linger on it it's because that's going to be important to that person's development later or something's going to happen later and i think that this is a, a weird circuitous way of kind of getting to this idea of Guillermo del toro being fascinated by monsters um you know literal monsters but then also just sort of you know people or things that act monstrous and basically just like what not even what caused them to be that way because he very clearly sympathizes with entities which are other yeah and i was gonna say he focuses on consequence i think which is you know uh something when when i think of a another example would be like breaking bad or better call saul Mm -hmm. is like arguably largely about consequence and every action having some sort of ripple effect Mm -hmm. um and so if you're looking at the monsters that he creates and that he portrays they very often are coming from a place of they were caused by something you know it's it's almost never especially when it comes to like monsters or ghosts you don't really find in his movies too often that they're just like these unknown beings. They're yeah. just there. They're always, they're always there for a reason. Yeah. Um, with maybe the the kaiju in uh, Pacific Rim. I, I mean, there's justification for why they're there. But like, if it was a more Guillermo del Toro movie, it might be like, you know, they were caused by, you know, human, um, any kind, more like a traditional kaiju movie where it was like the human's fault. You know, like like, like ra- the original Godzilla, basically. Radio- radioactive yeah. monsters or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally speaking, especially his Spanish language stuff, mm-hmm. tends to be more interested in consequence creating monsters mm-hmm. and um, and your actions and the past creating reflections that create monsters. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, we're not breaking any new ground here by saying that like he tends to always sympathize or empathize with the monsters basically um or the or this person who is the outsider or at least someone who is not the stiff clearly defined adult character i mean it's no coincidence that a lot of his movies have a child as a protagonist in devil's backbone in pan's labyrinth um even you could argue uh the um the sally hawkins character in shape of water is very childlike or at least she is not the standard adult i mean she has to communicate differently because she's a mutant. She sort of has a a jovial, childlike wonder with the way that she interacts with the world. And that's something that I love about his stuff is, like, uh, he does a lot of genre stuff, and it may be dealing with dark stuff, but it, it, it itself is not dark because he he's very joyous about what he does, and I kind of love that about him. He, I mean, he embraces the outsider, mm-hmm. and I think that this this happens with his human characters and then with his, with his creatures. Um, and you, you notice in the way that they're photographed and usually in the way that they first appear, um, 
is they're they're given a an entrance that even though they may be grotesque to the outside world, they're often given some sort of um, at least open hearted entrance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're thinking of like Santi and Devil's Backbone, like, you know, he's just kind of a lonely kid. Um, like he's very when he's scary, it's usually just because the scene is scary. It's yep. not it's not because he's doing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, the fawn, you know, kind of waxes and wanes between being scary and not. But I think that's a that's a character choice. That's mm-hmm. a that's part of the trial of uh, Ophelia as a character. Yeah. But um, but yeah, for the most part, um, even Crimson Peak, um, most of those kind of ghouls are like disturbing and scary. But it's their it's their outward appearance. It's how the world sees them that's scary. But mm-hmm. their actual actions, more often than not, are just them trying to connect, or just them trying to exist in a world where they're either stuck in it or they're just trying to negotiate it. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is what makes his movies ultimately really empathetic, um, and can also and and I completely understand this cri- criticism of him is that like he seems more interested in monsters than people. <laughs> um, and I think that might be true, mm-hmm. um, but I don't necessarily see this as a criticism. I think that's just those are the kind of stories that he's interested in. And I think it's something which is important for this social and political landscape that we're in because he's not, and maybe and you can push back on this if you if you wish. He doesn't. He is not really a filmmaker that sort of exists uh, or or intends for his monsters to exist as metaphors for something else. Uh, but it is. Um, but it is important to sort of have a uh, a filmmaker who is making who is sympathizing with these monsters because I have to watch my wording here because I'm not trying to call people monsters, but there are people who exist in the society that the larger society says you are an outcast, you are a monster, and he's kind of saying like maybe like these things that society views as monstrous, I love them and they're wonderful and they're beautiful in their way, which I think. I mean, if you watch his Oscar acceptance speech or if you've listened to his, uh, I believe, his interview on um, KCRW's The Business, like, he embraces and he loves those things that have been seen as horrific, which I think is wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that he, I think the, the creatures and the monsters do often serve as metaphor, hmm. but they're also usually kind of like buffered and buoyed by a lot of other metaphorical elements mm-hmm whether it's character design or it's specifically where they are, where, like where, where the characters live, um, all those kind of things. I think I have a lot of notes on that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that, uh, you know, those are the, I mean, the characteristics of, of his creations is that the, they may serve as, um, some kind of large metaphor that might seem a little bit broad, mm-hmm. but, um, dialing in the specifics and the detail, which is something that I think is really specific to him. Mm-hmm. Um, dialing in that nitty gritty of why a character walks the way they do, where their injuries are, why their skin looks the way it does. Mm-hmm. All of that stuff serves a purpose. Whereas specifically in a lot of other um, film or television that would create monsters like this, stuff is just made to look scary or mm-hmm. creepy or gross. Yeah. And stuff often looks scary and creepy and gross in a Guillermo del Toro movie. But like it's because there's something behind it. It's not just like, oh, their jaw is broken and hanging because that looks really creepy. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's broken and hanging like this isn't even in a movie, but like it's broken hanging because like somebody ripped their mouth open while they were (laughs) screaming or something like it. Like it's it's specific. Yeah. Um, And yeah, I think that that's something that I find really interesting about his work. Um, is I think his background starting as, uh, among other things, a makeup designer and, 
someone who had to physically create these creatures and um, had to know how to layer latex, what order to put things in, how to paint them so it blends, Mm -hmm. how to make someone's skin look cracked, all those little things, Mm -hmm. I think inform who he is as a filmmaker because anytime you listen to any interview with him or listen to a commentary, Mm -hmm. he knows every inch of every set Mm -hmm. and everything is specific down to like the laces on Jessica Chastain's dress. Like they all have a meaning, Mm -hmm. um, which can be a lot for some people. Um, And ultimately, if you're just watching the movie, you're probably not going to notice it. But what I think it does in a lot of his movies um, and David Fincher was more famous for this earlier in his career. I don't know if it's still the case, but Mm -hmm. um, Fincher early on um, was kind of notorious for, you know, if a character in a scene, let's say in seven, if Brad Pitt is going to open a filing cabinet, it's not just going to have the one file that he has to pull out and maybe one other one so it doesn't look empty. Mm-hmm. The entire filing cabinet is full of real cases. And like if he goes over to the wall, the clock has a battery in it. Yep. Like the all of this Fincher's rationale was that all of this was there because if the world feels real then the characters can be real. Yeah. Um, and probably especially with his, with his proclivity for long, ta- for like um, consecutive takes. Yeah. That like once the, the rote repetition of, of just delivering the lines is kind of gone mm-hmm. and you're just operating on autopilot, that's not the time for Brad Pitt to open a, a drawer and find that there's just the one paper for the scene in there. Mm-hmm. Like if he's in it, like he should be able to decide he wants to look at a different case. Yeah. And I think that for Guillermo del Toro, because he's so specific about all those things and his worlds are really specific and arch. Um, I think it actually leads to oftentimes better performances mm-hmm. um, because Jessica Chastain can go grab a book off a shelf in Crimson Peak and she could read it and that couldn't be in the script. But that book, probably has actual words in it um and i think you know from a from the point of view of a director working with actors that's the kind of stuff that i think is one of the reasons why actors like working with him Mm -hmm. is that he is so committed to creating a real world for them to play in and that as weird and as uh intricate as his filmmaking is and his camera style and all that stuff at the end of the day all of it is in service of creating a world that these characters live in. And I have to imagine as an actor, that's a really welcome experience to mm-hmm. not just feel like, well, you have to go over by the window because that's where the light is. Right. Like Guillermo <laughs> del Toro designs a set where you want to go walk by the window because it's warm. Mm-hmm. Like that kind of thing. Which is a good kind of segue into something that I wanted to talk about, which is sort of maybe criticisms of Guillermo del Toro, which is that maybe he's not exactly an actor's director because when you have that fully realized world, it sort of helps an actor kind of get into it and inhabit and live that role. But if you have someone like Charlie Hunnam, who is not the greatest actor in the world, it's sort of like, well, there's, you know, here's the world you're living in. Like what, what else am I going to do for you? And I'm, I'm being entirely speculative, but it does seem like whenever there are a criticism to a game of the Toro film, it's like, well, the performances were kind of like, Weird, and I've heard some people try and explain it as maybe there's just something lost in translation, like English is not his first language, so maybe he's not a great communicator in that sense. But it seems more like uh, he's the kind of guy where he is so consumed with creating that world and like having the actors live in that he's not the kind of guy where like no 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 say it like this or move like that. It's sort of like here's the world, live in it, and just kind of do whatever you want. Or maybe I just am really harsh against Charlie Hunnam. <laughs> I will not let this podcast go any further without acknowledging that in World War Z, he is great. 
Lost City of Z. Lost City of Z. World mm-hmm. War Z, he's not in. He's great not being in World War Z. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so I have an interesting uh, opinion on this, and I think it'd be something that I would encourage you to like to think about as you're watching the, the homework that I'm giving you. Okay. Uh, is that I think more often than not, and I'm going to come off for the next like two minutes as just a Guillermo del Toro stan. <laughs> I, I get it. He is my boy. I love him. I have a story that will like will mean that you can't take me seriously. Um, but it's fine. That's that's. <laughs> Wait, ne- I'm sorry. What, what is that's, that? That's next. That's next. Okay, that's, right, let's right. um let's uh let's set it up now and pay it off in a couple minutes. Okay. Uh, to the listeners, I just brandished something that got Jim very excited, but mm-hmm. I will not let him see it now. Okay. Uh, it's a secret. All right. Um. But I think that what is important and I, and what I often think about when I'm watching his movies, and it applies to other filmmakers as well, mm-hmm. is that he is someone who so boldly announces that he's working in specific genre and that he operates within that genre. And even when he sometimes twists and, and tugs and pulls at different things to make it his own, mm-hmm. he does operate within genre. Mm-hmm. And I would encourage you to when you're watching let's say crimson peak which is going to be on the on the homework Mm -hmm. don't watch it judging jessica chastain versus jessica chastain in a most violent year because those are completely different worlds Mm -hmm. and the the world in in the case of crimson peak uh the genre of gothic romance which is just it's just inherently arch and in 20 in 2018 Mm -hmm. uh it's really hard to watch a movie like that and uh, and not be thinking to yourself, like, everything feels pretty stilted. And, like, the camera is kind of, like, moving in really obvious ways. And I can tell who the villains are, like, right away. Yeah. But th- I think that's 2018 and a modern consumer of movies and television. Mm-hmm. Um, now, all we want is to be surprised and see characters that are so close to how we, how we behave. Yep. That, like, everything else rings false. Mm-hmm. But I would say that if you're watching his movies, consider the world that he's building. And does Jessica Chastain or Tom Hiddleston or Mia Vashkowska, do they belong in that world? Hmm. And how does that performance relate to that? I think about this a lot. Um, you know, people people like to... You, you talk qualitatively about film all the time. Like, this was good, this was bad. Yeah. I try my best. Maybe it's just, I think I have a bias because I am a filmmaker and because I make stuff. Mm-hmm. Is trying to think about the intention of the filmmaker... And then judge it, ju- judge whatever I'm looking at in support of that. Yeah. So, like, um, if you watch Pain and Gain, um, or the, the best example I can think of, actually, is um, if you come out of watching a screwball comedy and are like, well, these characters talk way too fast and that's not realistic. Yeah. Then I think you're watching that movie wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that it's it's a fair judgment to say that they talk fast. Mm-hmm. It's a fair judgment to say that more often than not, Guillermo del Toro's characters operate as archetypes mm-hmm. and op- don't operate much like human beings. They're more so in service of a greater fairy tale that he wants to tell. Yep. Um, and those criticisms are valid. And if it doesn't work for you, if you just don't like those kind of performances, that mm-hmm. that totally makes sense to me. But I wouldn't say that he's not a good actor's director hmm. because okay. I think... He would he would not be a good actor's director if it just felt like Tom Hiddleston was standing in a creaky old house and wasn't in the scene. Yeah. Um, you know, looking at specifically Jessica Chastain when when you rewatch Crimson Peak, like mm. or watch it for the first time. I don't know if you've seen it. I, I did I did see it when it was in the theater. I, I think it was one of those things where I went in expecting one thing, and because it was not that, yeah, my opinion of it was a little bit yeah. skewed. But she, she is. In that movie. <laughs> um, 
And I think that, like, based on the genre, I would argue that, like, all of her decisions make sense. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, that make make me sound like I'm just defending somebody. There's plenty of stuff in his movies that don't work. We're going to talk about some stuff later. One of the ones I want to show you where there's a bunch of stuff that doesn't quite work. Okay. At least for, to my taste. Spoil, you've already spoiled one title, Sean. That's 33% of the recommendations have already been spoiled before you've even gotten to the recommendation section. Episode two of The Strain. Um, <laughs> no. Oh, that show. No, no, no. Uh, but but that's actually a good segue to what I, to the secret that I had before. Oh, yes, yes, of course. So um, what I'm about to show you is going to invalidate any... <laughs> criticism that I can give because okay. this might also be why Guillermo del Toro means so much to me. Okay. So this would have been right after the book The Strain came out. Okay. So Guillermo del Toro wrote for listeners who don't know three novels with this guy named Chuck Hogan who also wrote a book that Ben Affleck adapted into something. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically he co-wrote this series of like vampire novels in I want to say like 2009 maybe 2010. Okay. Somewhere around there. Yeah. I was already a huge fan of his. Uh-huh. And the book was coming out, and at the time, uh, my now wife, then girlfriend, we were living in the city uh, for the summer, and there was going to be a signing at the Union Square Barnes & Noble, which, oh, yeah. is, which is still around. Yep. Hur- hooray. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I didn't realize at the time that he has like an enormous fan base. I thought I was just like, oh, I like his stuff. <laughs> um, and so we, the let's say the signing was at 7. Mm-hmm. So we're like, okay, we'll get there at 6. We'll be an hour early. There's going to be a little reading, a little Q&A. He's going to sign some stuff, and then we'll go home. Yep. And it was like Comic-Con in there. <laughs> uh, luckily, I had brought like materials to entertain myself and my wife, too. Thankfully, we had stuff to do while we were there. Yeah. But uh, basically, people showed up in full costume. I'm oh, talking wow. like Hellboy costume mm-hmm. with like big mechanical guns. Mm-hmm. Um, all kinds of crazy stuff, like sketchbooks, like huge, you know effectively easels with artwork and drawings and it's him and chuck hogan together for this kind of signing and q a mm. and obviously 99 percent of the people there are for guillermo del toro nobody's really super excited about the guy who wrote city of thieves or whatever it was called <laughs> um but he uh so we're in line and part of the reason why this is taking so long because we were there for four hours mm-hmm. it oh took God. so it took so long because guillermo del toro appreciates his nerds and for every person who came up and brought him something he was like opening your book looking at your sketches and being like i love what you're doing here with the with the hand coming out of the face you know Mm. it's really interesting and he's doing this for everyone he's inspecting people's props like it's amazing it's super warm and everybody's super excited so hours go by while we're waiting in line to get uh the book signed I had this red notebook, which Jim can see here. Yep, it's, I believe, what does it say? I did, we'll, we'll get there. Okay. Uh, so, it's, it's, just, it's just a red, red moleskin. Okay. Um, and I finally get up to get him to sign the book, and I have the notebook in my hand. And I'm thinking, no one's been talking to this other author the entire time. They're literally just, like, running over to Guillermo and then pushing, basically just pushing the book over to him. Just like, yeah, whatever, you can sign it too. I don't care. Um, and so, he, like, asked me my name. Uh, Guillermo does and sees the notebook and he's like, oh, you use moleskins. I go, yeah. He goes, I love moleskins. And he goes, I tried to record my voice, but I hate my voice. And I was like, I hate my voice too. <laughs> and he's like, and he's like, do you want me to look in your notebook? And I was like, please do not. No, 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 no. Um, and so he goes, what's your name? I say, Sean. And then uh, I turn and I start talking to Chuck Hogan yep. just to like chat about the book or whatever. And he has taken my notebook and now you can see this. You know how my name is spelt. So he draws a portrait of himself. <laughs> yep. Um, and then he writes on the notebook, Sean's, Sean's important, important notebook, notebook. Like I'm a five-year-old, <laughs> like Sean's secret journal, please keep out. And he draw he draws a portrait of himself, but 
he misspells my name. He does. I see this as I turn back and see S H instead of S E, and just like <laughs> everything goes into slow motion. <laughs> what am I gonna do? Um, so I've had this for years, and like I have like commercial pitches that I've written mm-hmm. in there, short films that I've written in there, all kinds of stuff. Um, but the notebook itself looks like a toddler's notebook. So like when I have had this like at a coffee shop just sitting on the table, mm-hmm. I look like a 12-year-old. Yeah. Um, so this is all physical evidence. I actually don't mind if you want to put this in show notes somehow. I, 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 I want to take a picture yeah. and put it on the Facebook page. Absolutely. It's incredible. I love this. I actually just filled this notebook up with my notes for this episode. Oh. So it's like a nice little, oh, wonderful. like this is going to go on the shelf now and then okay. one day I'll pull it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so... There's no way I'm not going to have nice things to say about Guillermo del Toro, but I have physical proof um, that I should have spelled my name right. Okay, so (laughs) listeners, if you are listening to this either uh, through Podbean or on iTunes, uh, go to the I Do Movies Badly Facebook page, and you can see a picture of Sean's important notebook with a a simplistic and yet remarkably accurate portrayal of Guillermo del Toro. That's a man that's drawn himself many times. (laughs) He looks like... He looks like Santa Claus. It's so adorable. He does. Oh. Little Mexican Santa Claus. Okay. Um, um, but yes, so anyway. Okay. Um, and, and, and I can, I, I mean, based on that, I can totally understand how you are, of course, uh, biased, and every criticism or, or, or every defense of your criticism is going to be entirely thrown out now because you are blinded by your love of Gamma Toro. so. Um, I am full heart emoji. I do have, you know, I've got a couple of X emoji as well, but but lots of heart emoji. Well, and also, I mean, to follow up on what we're talking about, like, I can see what you're saying because, yes, I mean, he has gotten great performances. Sally Hawkins and Richard Jenkins were great in Shape of Water. I mean, I while I'm excited for Stranger Things Dude in the Hellboy remake, uh, why am I blanking on who was David Harbour? Oh, yeah. who's directing Ron Perl- it? No, no, no. I was, uh, Ron, Ron, Ron Perlman's name was, like, yeah. did not occur to me for some reason. But, I mean, he's fucking fantastic as Hellboy. Yeah. Like, he's absolutely wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, of course, I mean, Doug Jones is, is more of a, obviously, a physical actor, but, like, the stuff that he does uh, in, like, I mean, just, a, is it Doug Jones? It's Doug Jones, yes. right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, as, like, as Ape Sapien, as the Angel of Death, um, in basically everything he does with Miguel Dehore, he is fantastic. So, I mean, so, yeah, I... I think if I if I'm going to therapize myself here on on Mike, I think I just don't like Charlie Hunnam. That's okay. Like at all. That's fine. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, yeah, look, it's it's totally cool. <laughs> um, now I do have. I, I, there's one more topic I want to talk about before we actually get to the recommendations, mm-hmm. um, and that is um, kind of Guillermo del Toro and spirituality. Sure. Because I, I should say that uh, my first exposure to Guillermo del Toro was Hellboy, but also while I was in college, and I went to a private Christian college, and I was first shown the movie by my screenwriting professor, who kind of basically described it as this is a great film about, or uh, which is a metaphor for um, a, a reluctant believer or the reluctant Christian, which which uh, Hellboy, and, and certainly watching it, you can kind of see those themes, and certainly Guillermo del Toro coming from Mexico, which is a very hev- heavily Catholic country historically. Um, it has to influence him in some way. I am a big believer of um, whether you realize it or not, the environment around you influences what you do uh, or, or the work that you create. And so I kind of saw that. And especially, I mean, it's it seems very apparent to me at the end and like, you know, before the, you know, the fight with the big bad and uh, he throws the crucifix to him and he says, you know, your father gave you that choice and he's got the cross burned into his hand and all that sort of stuff. And yet then I've also heard Guillermo del Toro interviews kind of, negate that and kind of like oh no I, I i'm I, I don't consider myself a very spiritual person and i didn't intend for metaphors like that kind of thing and so you having uh, also sort of a, an upbringing in that sort of world is that something that you see 
a connection to or validity to, or is it really just not even something that really occurs to you or even means much to you when you're watching his stuff? I think it's often there as texture. Mm -hmm. um, and I think he, he pulls from specifically Catholicism. Um, he pulls from it when he needs to, much in the same way that he would pull from a Douglas Stark movie if, mm -hmm. if, if it fits the moment. Yeah. Um, I think that there are certain movies um, like Kronos, which is set in Mexico. Yeah. Um, where it's much more apparent, but it, it's apparent in the way that it's a lot of it is just setting the scene of what it is to be in Mexico. There are there are crucifixes, crucifixes everywhere. Mm. There's a scene where like the coroner is working on a dead body and like he's got a cross, like a dead body that's going to turn into a vampire and he's yeah. got a cross around his neck. Like there's all kinds of things like that that are textural. Mm -hmm. Um, and even though there are obviously in the case of Kronos, the main character's name is Jesus, so yep. like. Um, there are definitely elements in there, I think, but I don't think he makes movies that are explicitly about faith. Mm -hmm. I think that he often describes himself as a lapsed Catholic. Yeah. And I think like, like most Catholics in the world, it's, <laughs> just, it's just kind of there whether or not you want it to be there. <laughs> um, so, I, and, and that's not to say that I don't think he sometimes does put stuff in there on purpose, mm -hmm. but I think that, um, he is more so interested, uh, I know specifically with Kronos that he's interested in um, the kind of the contradictions that are in in his mind inherent in the the rights and some some of the things that you have to do, mm -hmm. so he he talks about specifically um, finding it odd as a child mm -hmm. being told that you're drinking Jesus's blood, <laughs> and so Kronos yeah. is like a natural extrapolation of that. Yeah. And there's all kinds of imagery. You know, Jesus as a character wears a red cape at a certain point. Mm -hmm. There's specific imagery of where he's injured, yep. things like that. Um, that are certainly all there, but I don't think that he is really, you know, I think somebody like Scorsese is a little more overtly making, calling attention to, yeah. to religion. Are you trying to tell me there's spiritual themes in silence? No, that's the one that's not. That's just, <laughs> that's just about Japan, right? <laughs> yeah. It's just, a, it's just a basically historical biography of the nation of Japan. Yeah. It's Jiro dreams of sushi, but shot in the mountains. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, but yeah, I think. I think it's certainly there, and he doesn't deny that it's that it's a part of his upbringing, mm -hmm. much in the same way that he talk, he talks about having a troubled childhood. I don't really know any specifics about it, oh, but yeah. but he, his, I, I believe his father was a uh, kidnapped and ransomed. That was much later, though. Oh yeah, that yeah, was yeah. after Mimic, okay. um, or during Mimic, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but but yeah, he's talked about like coming from a traumatic traumatic childhood, yeah. and I and you know he says that may or may not influence why he often casts children as leads or as as crucial characters. Okay. Um, and I think there's also, there's a lot of, I think he is very interested in um, surrogate family or replacement family. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of his movies tend to be people latching on to not necessarily their father or mother, mm -hmm. but someone who's adjacent. So if you're thinking about Pan's Labyrinth, it's Mario, uh, Maribel Verdu's character is kind of like the surrogate mother, even though the mother is there. Mm -hmm. And certainly the father is not. <laughs> um, uh, Devil's Backbone, for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, Federico Lupi a couple of times playing uh, a fatherly character who isn't a father, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, I think he's more interested in those things and the faith-related stuff is more so texture that is used to comment on whatever story he's telling, Yeah, I would say. Okay. Um, in my opinion, anyway. Okay. Um, and for any Chuck Hogan fans who were listening, I should stop back and say the book is called Prince of Thieves. Prince of Thieves, um, which was adapted into The Town? Maybe? Yeah, which is, I think, a legitimately very good movie. Mm -hmm. um, it's got some great Boston accents. <laughs> um, and, and then, of course, yeah, uh, he 
co-wrote The Strain, and then I believe he also wrote the the 13 Hours book that Michael Bay turned into that Benghazi mm. movie. Okay. okay. Um, so, but anyway. Um, the Strain, I, I tried to give it a chance. I got like halfway through the first season. It didn't work particularly great. It, it's, it's not great. And this is entirely specific to us as New Yorkers. Anytime you shoot in another city and call it New York, we know that it's not New York. Uh, because there are aero views that do not exist at that geography. Sorry, filmmakers, but that's what happens when you shoot in Toronto and try and pass it off as New York City. We're just so used to having to walk around those little pink signs that are on all the... <laughs> that says no parking, and then you see Mariska Hargitay for a second. <laughs> that's true. Um, uh, okay, so before we get into the recommendations, one more thing that I'm going to spring on you. Mm-hmm. What Guillermo del Toro film would you like to see? I, I, I kind of unofficially dubbed this like... Uh, if this is I do movies badly, then this is sort of like he does movies better. So any Guild, Guillermo del Toro film that you would like to see, whether it be something that he worked on and had to abandon, or a film that another filmmaker did that you think Guillermo del Toro would do, or just in your own mind something you would love to see, what is the Guillermo del Toro film you would love to see? I think after Shape of Water, after the the heat that he has after Shape of Water, I think there's a good chance he might finally make it The Mountains of Madness. <laughs> and I think that's going to be wonderful. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, I know he's wanted to make that movie for a long time. A long time. Wants it to star Tom Cruise, which is interesting. Yeah. I'm curious if he's going to jump out of a plane because there are some sequences where they're flying over the Antarctic. So mm-hmm. maybe he'll halo jump out. Yep. Um, but I think that there's something really specific and I'm talking to somebody who knows way more about Lovecraft than I do. So, so I'm, you know, no good deal. Dude, this is a uh, baby shoes. If, if I'm, <laughs> if I'm the, uh, if I'm the Del Toro stand, then I'm talking to the, the Lovecraft stand. So <laughs> if, I, if I, if I, if I speak out of turn, just like release a really long tentacly thing that will be monstrous. But I think one of the things that, uh, I think a reason why he is going to work very well in that universe if he gets to make it is that um i've always found that lovecraft specifically with at the mountains of madness Mm. there is sort of this he's lovecraft is either explaining in great detail what things look like Mm -hmm. or he is stepping back and basically saying this is unexplainably horrible correct and i think that someone like guillermo del toro can really dig into the both of the specifics that are in the book already Mm -hmm. or that are in the short story yeah and then also gets to crack his knuckles when there's a passage in the book that says, like, the unspeakable horror. And he's <laughs> yeah. like, ooh, I got it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he does atmosphere and mood really well. I think that he, um, you know, he often... It'll be interesting for him because he so often is working in spaces that are really, um, I would say, full of any kind of accoutrement. Mm-hmm. You know, like... Uh, books and clocks and all this stuff so to work in a really sparse environment mm-hmm. will be really interesting for him yeah and i think i'd, I'd like to see that challenge I'd, I'd like to see him only be able to fixate on the monsters mm-hmm. and let everything else be sparse mm-hmm. kind of like the thing or something mm-hmm. um i think it's a perfect match for him i think that you know after shape of water he can probably tell them it's going to cost 250 million dollars <laughs> And they might let him do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if they're going to let him make it R, but this is this is the time where he can strike and be like, I just won Best Director. This movie's going to be R. What is so surprising to me about that movie, like how, because he was, for as you said, for years trying to get that made. And what is so surprising is, because uh, th- he was also trying to get that made post Pan's Labyrinth. So he, he already had like an Oscar. He was already a visionary filmmaker, quote unquote visionary filmmaker. And I don't put the quotes around it because of any dig at him but just we throw that term around so often i think what you're saying is more white people saw shape of water so now they think that people will see at the mountains of madness (laughs) um 
But not only was he attached to it, but like James Cameron was attached to it as producer as well, and they still couldn't get that yep. movie made, which is so surprising to me. Um, but okay, Sean, now I'm gonna I'm gonna step back and roll my sleeves up a little bit because I'm gonna dive down a little bit of, of a Lovecraft hole for a minute here. If you and the listeners will indulge me, listeners, if you won't indulge me, I'm sorry. <laughs> this would be a great time for the recording to just stop. <laughs> um, maybe go get a drink of water. Um, and, but anyway, so that's what I was thinking as well. If I could see a Guillermo del Toro movie and I, and I kind of, uh, tie, it, it's a tie. It's at the mountain of madness. And then I'll, I'll get into the other one, uh, in a little bit, but at the mountains of madness at first, I'm like, yes, 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 this is what I want. But if I really think about it, I'm not sure if I want Guillermo del Toro to make that because as we just established, Guillermo del Toro is a guy that sympathizes with the monsters hp lovecraft does not in the realm of hp lovecraft the monsters the quote-unquote gods elder gods uh whatever you want to call them uh they're firmly the antagonists they they are they do not give a shit about mankind they couldn't care if we're here or there and in fact it is often the uh mankind's inability to comprehend their own insignificance, which often drives them mad or, or to commit suicide or whatever. Uh, Cthulhu is not a creature to, to, to empathize with or, or, or to, or to get an idea of his backstory. The, um, the, you know, so, so I'm, I'm wondering sort of if his approach is the right one for that because these creatures, and now don't get me wrong in, in the, the lore of HP Lovecraft, there are, you know, creatures being abused by bigger creatures. So there is like a, an element of sort of, and especially in the mountains of madness, there are these creatures, which the name is escaping me, but they're basically sort of giant mutated penguins, which are sort of the slaves of larger creatures. So it's like, there is sort of that hierarchical element, but it's also the elder gods don't care about us. So I'm wondering about that. Approach. You're making me want Jeff Nichols to make it the mountains of madness. <laughs> I'm just thinking of like take shelter and just <laughs> I'm just like looking up at like this ominous like storm coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he he is the kind of filmmaker who would just turn the camera away and you never see the monsters. Um, Robert Eggers at the Mountains of Madness. OK. Yeah. That's what I want. And he's basically his next movie is basically kind of a Lovecraft story anyway. Like it's Willem Dafoe and like a lighthouse and there's something in the sea. Are you saying Willem Dafoe looks like a strange tubular thing <laughs> that's disturbing and you can't describe it? Willem Dafoe is definitely not descended from any humankind that we know. Um, but so that that's that was my first thought of Guillermo Toro. My second thought is uh, I know he was one that was offered uh, at least one, but uh, probably two Harry Potter installments. Um, I think he was approached to, uh, with Goblet of Fire after Alfonso Cuaron turned it down because he was still in post on Azkaban. And I don't like the job that Mike Newell did on Goblet of Fire at all. Uh, but I believe he was also approached for Deathly Hallows, but he turned it down for a, some reason, which is escaping me. And now don't get me wrong, David Yates did a fine job, but no one will really debate that Prisoner of Azkaban is kind of the best Harry Potter film, and that's because when you have someone like Alfonso Cuaron, who is a director with a vision and i don't know are you familiar with the uh the youtube guy the nerd writer mm-hmm. yeah have you seen his video on uh prisoner of azkaban no uh basically he kind of breaks down why alfonso Cuarón's shooting style 
makes is the best one. Like it's the way that he moves the camera and the way that he fr- it's it's basically sort of yeah. Alfonso Crone is an artist and this is why this film is great. So to kind of see, like I said, David Yates, fine director, workman's director, maybe not really an auteur, which that's more of my thing than anyone else's, but like to see to haven't seen like Guillermo del Toro kind of take his whimsy and his jovialness like to that world. I can I can only imagine what that would have been like. I think you've just hit on something too that I didn't get a chance to mention is that Guillermo del Toro is very funny. Yes. And even when his movies are dark and grim, there's usually it's not always Ron Perlman, but there's usually mm-hmm. an element somewhere that's just got a little bit of just like a devilish sense of humor. Yeah. Um and so getting to see him play around with that a little bit would be fun. I, I, I think the Harry Potter universe would be a good place to put him in. But truthfully, mm. now that I think about it, what I want to see from him is I want another Spanish language movie. Mm. Yep. Um, I think that I often find... I think his movies are better in Spanish. Mm. Um, I think that there's a certain... There's a certain quality to the language. Um even just the way that sentences are structured and the way the way that um, Spanish as a language works mm-hmm. that fits his thematics a lot better. I think it's no, it's, I would maybe say that there's, uh, it's no, uh, it's no coincidence that a lot of magical realism comes out of the Spanish speaking world. Mm. Um, I think there's just, there's something to the quality of, of Spanish as a language mm-hmm. that fits well with the kind of stories that he likes telling. And I think, was occasionally in English, it ends up feeling a little more wooden, and I don't. I don't think it's a matter of like him not understanding it because he's extremely, extremely fluent in English. Mm-hmm. I think it's just that English as a language isn't the best vehicle for Guillermo del Toro's words. Yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. And it's funny too. You mentioned uh, magical realism. It's. Uh, I just remember when it seemed like it was poised that uh, him, Alfonso Coron, and Alejandro Gonzalez and Yaritu were going to like take over the world. And on a spectrum of, like, sense of humor, it's like you have Guillermo del Toro at the top, Alfonso Cuaron, who can certainly tap into that whimsical or humor, and then <laughs> Inyaritu, who doesn't seem to have any sense of humor whatsoever. Um, no, no, no. But that's neither here nor there. Okay, so, Sean, let's get into the recommendations. And now, we've you've already spoiled one, which is fine, but I guess you can kind of do it in any order that you want. Most people just kind of do it in chronological order, which makes sense. Um, but, uh, I always like to bring up this idea when Daniel Wahlberg was on and talking about, um, why is his name escaping me? Um, the skin I live in, uh... Pedro Almodovar. Almodovar. Almodovar, yeah. He actually started with, like, uh, more recent stuff and worked backwards, because he's like, I need you to dip your toe in Almodovar, and I'm not just going to throw you into the deep end, which I appreciated. But, so, uh, Sean, we've been talking for, like, an hour and a half so far. So I guess people are finally kind of wanting to know what you're going to recommend. So, little drum roll. What is your first recommendation for a Game of the Toro film for me? So I'm going to go slightly out of order mm. because I, th- I think it's I think it's informative to watch them in a certain way. Ooh. So I'm going to start you with my favorite, which is Devil's Backbone. Ah, Devil's Backbone. Okay. Yes. I, I should I should have also said this first and foremost. Um, as I said in my um, my I do movies badly prelude comeback episode. I used to do it where I sort of had a certain criteria. If I'd seen the movie within uh, a recent memory, I've kind of like taken it off the table. I'm not doing that anymore because I, I kind of just want, listen, it's fun to talk about films. It's fun to educate ourselves about films. So it doesn't matter if I've seen these movies before, but it just so happens that Devil's Backbone, I haven't seen this movie in a long, long time. So I'm actually quite glad you recommended this one. So, Sean, talk to me a little bit about The Devil's Backbone. 
so um sorry i'm adjusting my little microphone thing Mm -hmm. um so devil's backbone is like i said my favorite of his films Mm -hmm. he often refers to the to to it as sort of the brother the the masculine mirror image of pan's labyrinth Mm -hmm. which i think is what most people's favorite film of his is interesting um and I think that in terms of getting at a lot of the stuff that I have talked about, that I really appreciate about him, uh, I think it's a really good distillation of what makes him an interesting filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it is one of a few movies of his that are um, kind of, they're set in worlds that are in the midst of transition. Mm-hmm. So in the case of um, Devil's Backbone, uh, it's the Spanish uh, Civil War. Yeah. And um, obviously there's the motif of quite literally a a diffused bomb in the middle patio of this orphanage. Um, but I think that it's um, there's a lot of stuff that is just so specifically him that uh, is a really great starting point And I think is a little less grotesque than something like Pan's Labyrinth. Mm-hmm. So if, if we have any listeners who are new to Del Toro... Um, Pan's Labyrinth can be a little much. <laughs> like it, it's wonderful and it's one of my favorite movies, but I think it it can be a little bit kind of just squishy. Interesting. <laughs> um, and that term actually, I think it attracts that specific. Squishy is the right is the right adjective. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, there are a lot of elements in there that are really classic Del Toro that I think are going to be useful going forward. I think um, the way that he uses color palette. Mm-hmm. is something that's really I know is really important to him and we talked before about his idea of eye protein versus eye candy. Sure. Um he works in this case with Guillermo Navarro yeah. um to really design specific colors that are often coded with characters. Yeah. Um in this case there's a lot of play between and frequently but in this case specifically a lot of cyan versus warm amber. Mhm. Um, Wait, and which is sort of like it's interesting that you say that because that's sort of a, a joke when it comes to movie posters or movies. It's sort of like that is the color palette that people use to kind of immediately evoke like a certain feel to like for you, right? Um, but the way that he uses it, I, th- I think that oftentimes in movie posters and often, frankly, in color grading in, mm. in when people finish movies, specifically like a Michael Bay movie or something, is those are just those complementary colors yeah. that work well just visually, but he uses them for specific. Um, for specific reasons, and they're they're often tied to character and to theme more so than they are just like oh well these colors look nice with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, he also uses a lot of specific instances of red, mm-hmm. and more specifically the absence of red, yeah. with the except with the exception of certain characters in certain moments. Um, I think this is also an example of an early iteration of his character design that when you watch it, there are moments that certainly like the visual effects don't quite stand up to current stand to current to our current taste for these kind of things okay but considering that it's a mixture of practical and and digital and also considering the budget and that it was made in 2001 one yeah um that it's you know it's impressive for a number of reasons but more specifically the the methodology behind the character design is really specific mm-hmm. um and again, we can go into, I can go into as little or as much detail about the character design if you want, if we want to like leave spoilers for people who haven't seen it yet. Um, Needless to say, like the character design of the main ghost mm-hmm. in this, uh, in this film, which is a, a little boy, yeah. is specific to their character right, yeah. um, in very interesting ways. It's, it's a good example of Del Toro using um, a human character as the actual villain yeah. and 
um, something that is consistent in a lot of his work, um, which is a protagonist or a, a lead character of some sort who has a very benign um, opinion of whatever they're seeing. It's slightly magical realism, but I mean, it's usually through the through the eyes of a child. But the idea of seeing something that should be grotesque and terrifying, but approaching it by walking closer to it instead of trying to back away from it. Um, you know, seeing something down the hall and wanting to look at it. Yeah. Um, and I think that the way that he uses the camera in um, in Devil's Backbone is interesting as well because it's it's a f- kind of floaty, steady cam. And Del Toro, in general, his camera work is kind of impeccable, and it's always it's always moving in interesting ways. Um, but in the case of Devil's Backbone, I really do get the sense that the car- the camera is supposed to behave like a ghost. It floats and moves around and does stick with characters, but it also just loses interest in a character and then walks away um, in really great, believable ways. I think sometimes you see stuff like that and it just looks like a director doesn't really know what else to do, but they already got the steady cam up. So why not make the shot 45 seconds instead of 15 seconds? Sure. Um, but he in Devil's Backbone really does give the character gives the camera a very curious point of view. Mm-hmm. Um and when it decides to move away from a lead character and not stay attached to it is really interesting to me. Yeah. Um, and I think it's worthwhile when you look at some of his other films. Um, he talks about, for instance, in Pan's Labyrinth, that the camera is supposed to, f- the camera work and the edits are supposed to feel like gears and cogs clicking into each other. Mm-hmm. Um, it's supposed to be post, in that case, that film is post um, Spanish Civil War. And so it's supposed to have that kind of military, this feeds into this, and even though it's beautiful like the cogs of Spain, Spain at that time are pushing the camera in specific ways. Hmm. Um, but we're talking about devil's backbone. Sure. Um, I think <laughs> um, other than that, it's got um, a lot of great kind of Guillermo del Toro humor as well. I mean, having a, having a, an orphanage full of little boys gives him opportunities to make them behave like little boys. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> And I think it just has it's it's a great example, arguably the best example I think of a uh, a very open opinion of a whatever his monster or his creature is, mm-hmm. whatever the key creature is for a given movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and there's just amazing set design. Obviously, like I said, the color palette's incredible. Um, the score is really great, um, and so that's that would be almost like your that's almost like your tuning fork. For, for Del Toro, it's like this is this is what a C sounds like in Del Toro. Now, now we're gonna we're gonna go a little bit in other directions and see how it goes. I, I do like before we move on. I, I do want to hit upon it. I do like that idea of Guillermo del Toro, uh, whether it's through his writing, his directing, or the camera work, sort of remembering what it's like to be a child. Um, because that, that that very much was that case of like when you're a kid, it's like here's something scary. I kind of want to know more about this. I'm going to walk closer towards it. I mean, I was telling a, a coworker the other day a story of like when I was young, I never, I still to this day don't know how to dive. <clears throat> the first thing I learned how to do off a diving board was flips. And so off a 10 foot high dive as like a 12 year old, I'm just not even thinking about it. I'm just kind of like doing it. I'm like just throwing myself into the danger. And then flash forward 10 years later, I'm at the top of a high dive. I'm like, why, why would anyone jump off this ever? Um, but he remembers that sort of thing of like that, that natural curiosity of even like the dark and the scary things of like, no, I want to, I want to see what's in that dark room sort of thing where we get all it's like, mm, I'm going to trust that everything is fine, which that always is amazing to me when a, a filmmaker or an artist kind of can keep tuned into that. 
because as we kind of get older, it's sort of like kids almost sort of become aliens. Is like, I don't understand this thing. Um, so to be kind of tuned into that is something that I find very impressive. And I think uh, I'm also, this will this will play into his other films that we're going to talk about. His films are often very elliptical in mm. in the way that they start and end. Quite literally, they often start and end at the same point mm. and kind of circle the way back to it. Right. And they almost always start with a voiceover. Right. Certainly most of his Spanish language stuff starts that way. Mm. Um, and I think this also, again, can kind of tune and calibrate you to the fact that, like, this is, it's a ghost story, and it's kind of supposed to be a bit like a fable, a little bit like a, a story that might even be told to children, mm-hmm. um, even though there are certainly some adult elements in it, um, but you're kind of supposed to live in that world, and I think when he introduces films in that way, where a voiceover comes in while you're seeing a scene that seems like it might be from a different part of the film... Um, that kind of clues you into the world that you're supposed to live in here. You're be, I'm being told a story mm. instead of I'm watching humans. I'm not. I'm not watching a, a Duplass Brothers movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm. I'm about to be told a tale. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, Devil's Backbone. That's my favorite. Okay. It's inc- it's incredible. So we're starting. We're starting with Sean's favorite. And once again, when I uh, to remind everybody because it's been a year. I'll get into more detail of availability when I do the individual episodes, but uh, this one seems like it's available on Amazon Prime, which is great, because I have that. So that's going to be good for me. Um, and one final note, I'd be remiss if we didn't also just kind of hit upon how how influential Totoro has been in also producing and bringing other people's work uh, to the forefront, which, and this comes to mind because you talked about, you're talking about camera movements and how he moves it, and uh, The Orphanage, directed by J.A. Bayona, but produced by Del Toro, one of the best scares I've ever seen is in that movie, which is how it's a mm-hmm. simple camera yep. movement back that's and forth, and it's the so wonderful. The la pared scene. It's the best <laughs> thing in the world. That's that's the movie that my wife and I saw on our first date. Oh, yep. I proposed to her in this in the same theater where we saw that <sighs> saw that movie. So, like I said, <clears throat> Del Toro is all over my life. <laughs> when I when I finish the script that's ready, I'm gonna get it into his hands somehow. It's like it's just bound to happen. That's and if he ever hears this, he's going to like flag my name and be like, <laughs> "Don't ever accept anything from." I don't care how he's. Bells, Sean. Yep. Do not do not accept any mail from him. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yes. Okay. Um, should we move on to to the yeah, next one? I, th- I think so. We have we're starting with Sean's favorite. So I'm assuming everything after this is garbage. Yes. Okay. Picked a bunch of bad stuff. <laughs> um, so I talked before about how I find that his movies the 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 difference between how they operate in English and Spanish mm-hmm. is key. I think. Okay. So the next movie is Crimson Peak. Okay. Um. So Crimson Peak, you've already talked about how when you watched it at the time, it didn't work for you. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of people that it didn't work for. Mm. Um, I feel like you could probably create a super clip of just Guillermo del Toro in interviews saying, it's a gothic romance, it's not a horror movie. It's a gothic <laughs> romance, it's not a horror movie. So like, um, I, I don't think we really need to retread over um, genre distinction or, or how people were watching it wrong, because I don't really think that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a difference between like watching something wrong and just like not keeping in mind the intention. That's what we were talking about before. Yeah, and that was and because those kind of interviews and those kind of comments should have been directed towards me because that's what I was expecting when I was going in. I was expecting it to be disturbing. Movie. Yeah, and then kind of walking up and like, what the hell was that that I just watched? And then mm. reading every review and everyone's comments of being like, this was a great gothic horror movie and like or or yeah, and not and not even and not I mean. Emphasis on the gothic and not so much the horror, but just in terms of the set pieces. I, I mean, that, that fucking mansion is 
a marvel of production design. Yep. And it's such a heartbreak that it had to be torn down immediately after they they, they wrapped filming. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Um, filmmaking is a very wasteful endeavor, yep. la- ladies and gentlemen. It's a beautiful endeavor, but it's usually a waste. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so uh, part of the reason why I picked Crimson Peak, mm-hmm. um, and specifically to come right after um, Devil's Backbone, is that it is basically, if... Devil's Backbone is Guillermo del Toro working and operating from a point of view of really wanting to prove himself. Mm-hmm. This was after the kind of disaster of of Mimic. Um, I believe Blade 2 hadn't happened yet. It might have, but even still, he was in a position at the time where he was trying to get back to his roots, make a movie in Spanish, make something small. It was, produ- it was produced by um, uh, uh, the skin I live in. We just we just uh, lost Almodovar. Um, oh, yeah, Almodovar, right? So it was produced by him. It was it was a very like homespun like I'm gonna get back to my roots production. Mm-hmm. Um, Crimson Peak is him returning to the themes of ghosts and reflections and time being cyclical, um, but now he's doing it in English with a bigger budget with people that you ultimately recognize, um, and just making it in 2015 as opposed to 2011. Um, so that in its own way, like it, it shows, it shows how he is a filmmaker adapts to, to, to changing times. And, and it was also, I mean, that was the, the movie he directed after Pacific Rim. So he just made, he just proved that he could make a buttload of money. It was basically sort of like, okay, do whatever you want. Uh, you know, but even still he was making it relatively cheaply from mm. what I understand. And for him, so for him, it was a come down kind of like how, Devil's Backbone was a come down. Mm-hmm. It was like, I'm going to make something that's a little more personal, that's a little more specific to all of my interests. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some interesting things that I think comparing the two of them. So he's working uh, for the first time since Mimic with Dan Lauston as a DP instead of Guillermo Navarro. Yeah. And so if you compare the style, Dan Lauston is really leaning into some of Del Toro's references from like Italian horror film. So oh. if you're looking at like Mario Bava or Dario Argento. Do you mean Jalo films, Sean? I didn't want to accidentally say the wrong thing, um, but yeah, that. Yeah. The the ones that are in Italian that are crazy with the colors. So. Um, <laughs> like so, yeah. So that movie, I, I think Crimson Peak. Actually, I rewatched that this morning. Oh. Um, that is like a study in color theory, among other things. Um, hmm. But I think that the way that it's used, and that's specifically the contrast between how color is implemented in. Uh, the buffalo sequences and whatever takes place in the house, mm-hmm. um, they they work kind of in inverse than you than you think they would, and I think it actually shows a bit of his distaste for modernity, hmm. and I think he has a bit of a pessimistic view of um, industrial you know um, industrial development, um, even though he is fascinated with things like gears and steam and all, all all the stuff that people sometimes make fun of, like you know if it's a shot of some gears. Going together, it's from gear. It's from again with the Toro movie, but like, I think he is a little bit pessimistic and is more interested in a retro old school. I think it's no surprise that a lot of his movies take place in the past. Uh-huh. He has a fascination, I think, with a more analog point of view. Right, and um, the way the color is used between the stuff that is supposed to be, for all intents and purposes, more industrial, and the stuff that's supposed to feel more old worldy, those colors don't. Like they're flipped from what they should be. Yeah. When you're when you're looking at everything in the house, it is like lush and you're told that it's falling apart, mm-hmm. but it's lush and vibrant, and you've never seen so many different saturated colors. Um, and so it's a really fascinating 
um, thing to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. There's also very specific costume design stuff in that film. Um, Jessica Chastain talks a lot about how her costuming as a character was very important to her. Um, and I think as well, we were talking about camera before with uh, the way that the camera moves in Devil's Backbone. Um, oftentimes, I found watching it this morning, the camera in Crimson Peak is much more fixed to Mia Vashikovska as a character. It's much more from her point of view. Hmm. And so even though the camera floats around, it's often still off her shoulder or is following her down somewhere and doesn't frequently lose her in the frame. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically when the camera's moving. When it's when it's cutting away to an insert, that's certainly a different thing. Yeah. Um, but the camera moves differently. And I think if you watch them, especially if you watch them close together, you can see that there's a difference in the way that he's moving the camera, which I think is key because... You know, it's if you're watching it passively, you would just think that he knows how to move the camera really fluidly, but they move really differently, Mm -hmm. which is interesting. Um, Hmm. And then on top of that, I think watching how his ghost designs have evolved Mm -hmm. between Devil's Backbone and this is also really interesting. Um, Again, a lot of it is driven by character and backstory, Mm -hmm. but it's obviously a much more integrated CG environment i think it's still mostly i think was captured practically Mm -hmm. and then augmented and adjusted um but even still there's a specificity to the way that all of the different uh, ghosts are moving about the house Mm -hmm. that is uh really um it feels much more lived in and is not just there to scare you in fact oftentimes you kind of see them more as like beings that are in pain and anguish right you don't really see them as like something that's threatening even though sometimes they are terrifying Uh um and as we mentioned before with respect to like performance you know this is the first thing that i'm giving you that's in english and watching how at least in my opinion everybody pretty much sits in that world Mm -hmm. and so if you go into it be like okay this is supposed to be arch like you know, this is, there are literal scenes with Mia Vashikovska walking with candles through, mm-hmm. like, creepy hallways. Yep. Like, that's the movie you're in for. So, <laughs> so like, Tom Hiddleston should be a little bit, like, overly posh. And, um, you know, Mia Vashikovska, you know, feeling very virginal, mm-hmm. but, but bold in her own way, but still feeling very, um, almost like you can't touch her, very fragile at first. Right. Um, there's a lot of interesting stuff that's there. And again, you may, you know, I'll, I'll listen back once you've, once you've released the episodes. Sure. Uh, it may not work for you. Mm-hmm. It may just be that, like, I can sit in that and enjoy it. <laughs> mm-hmm. But if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. If it- well, and, and once again, I think it's, uh, even at the time, admitted that a lot of my takeaway from it was, like, I was expecting one thing. Yeah. And that's not what I got. So in a way my my opinion was almost sort of like skewed like i i was not prepared for what it was um which is unfortunate because that's that sometimes happens um and also this is a sort of uh one of those situations where once again the pendulum swings in the opposite direction because uh before that before this one as we said it was pacific rim which made literally hundreds of millions of dollars worldwide and then crimson peak comes out according to box office mojo maybe this isn't true a budget of 55 million and worldwide made not even 80 so right kind of considered a quote box office flop um and uh this was but this was like far after he had left the hobbit right because there was like five years in between hellboy 2 and pacific rim so it was like in there where he was i'm pretty sure that was the the realm where he was yeah and and some of the specific horror elements of crimson peak that are there are actually taken from 
the time that he spent staying at a haunted hotel while he was prepping the Hobbit. That's awesome. Yeah. So so there's a lot of, and I think that's a, that's that's another thing that um, I didn't touch on before, mm-hmm. and is a little again is specific to people who are listening who are filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Is that one, I think one of the reasons why he's so popular with filmmakers is because he's so open about his process and what he's doing. He's not very guarded about showing people about, about giving away his secrets. Mm-hmm. If you listen to his commentaries, he will tell you everything about, you know, the, the, the camera moves, the lighting, what this is influenced by, mm-hmm. how this is a story from his childhood that he ripped and, and changed and all kinds of stuff. So like, I think part of the reason why he's so popular with filmmakers is because it's like, you're sitting at a bar. If you listen to a commentary, especially you're sitting across a bar with your really creative filmmaker friend yep. and you're just nerding out about like how cool it is, like what, what you can do, what's, what makes cinema so special. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's, you know, if we're, if we're talking about why he's special to me is that he, he has the quality to reinvigorate filmmaking for me mm-hmm. um, because he uses every aspect of it. Um, you know, he it takes advantage of the fact that you that it's a visual medium that's paired with music and sound design. The sound design in Crimson Peak is incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in Devil's Backbone, there's a lot of interesting stuff as well. But um, he sort of is a like is like the prototypical like this is this is a proof that cinema is a unique art form and that when all of these things work together it can make magic mm-hmm. um whereas like sometimes depending on other and there's nothing wrong with other kinds of movies but if it's just two people talking in a diner mm-hmm. um it doesn't necessarily scream to you like this is what cinema was made for yeah um c- cinema was created so that Guillermo del Toro could make Crimson Peak like that's <laughs> that's kind of how it feels like um but yeah I, I think the I think the performances are interesting Charlie Hunnam is in it <laughs> um <laughs> But I, but he's I don't think he's as uh, I don't have as much of a problem with him as I do in like in uh, Pacific Rim yeah for instance um, but yeah watch J- Jessica Chastain's performance is she is having the most fun <laughs> yeah I, I think she wishes she could shoot that movie for years <laughs> um, um, there was something else I was gonna say about uh, Crimson Peak and I completely forgot what it was um, so I guess we'll just table that and move on to your third and final recommendation, Sean. So we've got Sean's favorite, Devil Backbone, and then we've got Crimson Peak. Now, what is now? I'm very curious, Sean, as to what your third and final recommendation of Guillermo del Toro film is going to be. I wanted it to be Mimic so bad, <laughs> um, but I wouldn't even watch Mimic. <laughs> um, but. Uh, the so the choice I have is I want you to watch Kronos. Okay. Have you seen it? I've seen it a long time ago, mm-hmm. and so all I remember is like, oh, Ron Perlman's in that movie, and there's vampires and like a weird little device, and that's right. Basically, all I remember about it. So I think after watching two different versions of what I would say is Del Toro at his peak, mm-hmm. one in terms of like creative, um, creative agita which is like Devil's Backbone, and then like studio support and Hollywood support um, would be Crimson Peak. It's really interesting to go back and then watch Kronos, watch his first movie, mm-hmm. um, and see what where he still comes through and where I think he hasn't figured out exactly how to make a Guillermo del Toro movie yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like the story of that movie is like fascinating for any number of reasons. Um 
that he tells the story that like basically no one in Mexico wanted him to make this movie. <laughs> like he could not get funding from anyone. Uh-huh. They all told him it was going to be bad. And then when it went, I think it, it, it won either something at con or it won enough big prizes that basically he got to go to the Mexican film commission and be like, huh? <laughs> right. Um, so it's, and it is in some ways very much a Guillermo del Toro movie, but it's him operating under severe restrictions and just kind of saying, screw it. We're going to make the movie anyway. Right. Um, which I think is inspiring in some ways. And it's also interesting to see where it doesn't quite work mm-hmm. and where you start to realize that if he's working at a super low budget, it's interesting to see if he can still pull it off. Like I'm, I think now as a, he's probably like 50 years old. Mm-hmm. So like as a 50 year old filmmaker, he might be able to make a movie for like, you know, $500,000 well, or or shape, like a million dollars. Shape of Water was Shape of Water was twenty. Yeah, that, that's a um, and that's a pretty low budget, which for is it. insane. And he talks a lot about how basically he was thinking like he was on Kronos when he was making that. Mm-hmm. But like twenty million dollars is definitely not two million dollars. Mm-hmm. And Kronos was made for two million dollars in nineteen ninety one. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, ninety three came out in ninety three, so yeah. probably shot in ninety two. Mm-hmm. Um, and it and it, it did win. Um, I don't know what this means, but it won the Mercedes Benz Award at the Cannes Film Festival in 1993. I don't know what that award necessarily means. It went to Cannes and people didn't boo, so <laughs> that's good. Um, um, he's allowed back, unlike Lars von Trier. So, oh boy. Yeah. At one, at one point, you're going to do a von Trier episode, I'm sure. <sighs> the Five Obstructions is great. It's not like his other movies, but it's great. <sighs> Uh, actually, it is kind of like his other movies in a weird way. But anyway, um, we'll get we'll get to that at another time. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, I think that you know, watching Kronos again because I watched that again recently, um, you can feel him struggling between um, his stomach being way larger or his stomach being way smaller than what he wants to eat. Yeah. Um, so uh, we've talked a lot about how he uses color and color palette. Mm-hmm. Um, he's certainly attempting to do stuff like that, mm-hmm. and he, and he's working with Guillermo Navarro. Yeah, because yeah. Um, but a lot of those sort of really specific production design, like a lot of the production design stuff that contributes to color palette, is really hard to do on a low budget. Sure. And I think that um, it doesn't quite, it doesn't quite pop in the way that his later films do. Yeah. Um, now I don't have any, you know, I have not read anything that said that he wanted a much more muted color palette my my guess is that if he had his druthers it would have had a lot more visual impact mm-hmm. uh, but like Kronos as a film for the most part is not particularly gorgeous he doesn't have the kind of budget to run around with a steadicam yeah. that frequently mm-hmm. um, for instance um, which is not his only tactic but as someone who is later in his career often known for how well he moves the camera it is interesting to see how much of this is either shot on like a very small dolly or just on a tripod mm. um, and I think sometimes it, especially in early stages where he's still kind of working out how the world how the world works. Mm-hmm. It's also Kronos is also a world that is pretty close to the, to the real world. It's actually it takes place in ninety or it takes place in ninety four, even though it was shot in ninety two, hmm. and it was made right after NAFTA. It was intended to be a reaction to NAFTA, oh. and so the vampirism in the film is also kind of commenting on these other countries coming in to Mexico. And kind of acting like vampires and kind of absorbing Mexican culture for their own for their own desires. So that's I think that's part of the reason why Ron Perlman speaks English. Why there's a lot there's a lot of language in there. There's some there's uh, Chinese and Russian 
um, language that's just peppered in the background. Interesting. Like if you look in scenes, there are newspapers and labels and stuff that are all from different countries. Mm. Um, so in a way, the film is also about that. It's about where Mexico was right after NAFTA or mm-hmm. as NAFTA was happening, um, which I think is interesting because it's one of his more, in that way, it becomes a, a relatively political movie mm-hmm. and which is stuff he doesn't always overtly do. Yeah. Um, but he is a little bit limited in what he can accomplish but the stuff that still shines are, I think, a lot of the makeup work, while it's primitive, is really specific. Mm-hmm. And um, it doesn't often feel like low-budget um, creature design, where it's just like, well, this is just the coolest-looking thing we could figure out. It still feels really intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's a lot of... Um, you can already see his his obsession with the minutia of how creatures work. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think we didn't specifically talk about before, but if anyone's actually read The Strain, there are whole chapters that are just about the physiology of how the vampires in The Strain work. Huh. And there's a little bit of that in Blade too. He's really interested in like not just what these creatures are, but like how does this thing eat? Like wh- how does it digest? Mm-hmm. And so when you look at Kronos, there's obviously there's the there's, there's the device yeah. which has a thing inside of it, and that thing is living. Um, and there's detail that, that is conveyed that at least gives you a sense of how that works. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really does, in those moments, it almost feels like a CSI close-up of like when they cut to like a heartbeat that's yeah. about to like go into AFib or something. Mm-hmm. He does that, but with these creatures. And I think it's intended to make you think, like, no, this is how it's eating. I'm not just showing you the creature because it's creepy. I want you to know what's happening. Well, um, it it kind of gets back to that idea of what you're talking about, of like this is a, a lived-in world that has its rules and that has the gears turning like this is this is a part of that world as much as these people who you're who are protagonists or antagonists or anything like that's part of it um and also chronos um along with pan's labyrinth are the two films of uh del toro which are in the criterion collection i think i think it's only those two right chronos devil's backbone and and, and pan's labyrinth okay they they have like a good three a three set okay um i actually was gonna bring i have the criterion uh devil's backbone i was gonna bring it and then Mm -hmm. i forgot uh it's good because you would not have gotten it back that's fine it also (laughs) it it has quick sidebar it has his uh short film called um heometria which is geometry um and it is a complete giallo ripoff intentionally (laughs) And I'm going to give it to you because you need to watch it because it is hilarious. <laughs> but anyway, um, if we're getting back to Kronos, I mm-hmm. think that um, there are elements of it that don't quite work yet. There's some of the stuff I've talked about before mm-hmm. um, where I, I think that as a director, he's able to ground his actors into the world yeah. that they exist in. Um, I think that Kronos suffers a little bit from tonal inconsistency between the characters. I think Ron Perlman's character is in his own world and is having a blast and is fun to watch, but he's not in the same universe as Federico Lupi, even when they're in the same scene. <laughs> um, and I think that, again, that's um, that might just be early, um, you know, the kind of growing pains of being a filmmaker who's still relatively young. Yeah. It might just be a matter of, again, like budget not being able to flesh the world out entirely. He might have also, at that time, I think he, even if he knew Ron Perlman, he might have not had him for as long as as you would hope, especially on a low-budget thing. Yeah. So sometimes, like, the the hard truth of filmmaking is, I've got Ron Perlman for three hours today. I can't spend a lot of that time, like, working with working on the performance. Like, yeah, yeah. he's having fun, and I'm entertained, and also I'm excited that the guy from Beauty and the Beast is in my movie, so I'm just going <laughs> to let him do what he wants. 
I think you see that sometimes in low budget stuff when there's a bit of stunt casting. Mm-hmm. Sometimes yeah. it's like, oh, Tom Hanks is in this movie, but it's really like Tom Hanks is in this movie. It's not. There's not a character in there. It's yeah. it's we got Tom Hanks and that's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that there are some tonal inconsistencies there. Uh, I think you can feel him bumping up against the budget every once in a while. But I think that in terms of his point of view, mm-hmm. it's still really interesting. I think that he's, again, he casts a young actress to play kind of a a secondary character, but who is accompanying Federico Lupi's character. Um, I think that it's an interesting take on vampirism. Um, it's in, in fact, they don't actually mention at any point that he's a vampire. There's no, nobody outwardly says it. Yeah. He just exhibits certain symptoms. And I think it's portrayed in a way that's much more... Um, it's much more grounded, which I think is another reason why it's not as successful with some of his other movies mm-hmm. is I think it's having a hard time deciding if it wants to live in the real world or if it wants to live in a supposed kind of Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, there's a lot of um, real consideration for how Federico Lupi, Lupi's character, whose name is Jesus, mm-hmm. we've talked about this before, <laughs> yeah. um, but his eventually his thirst for blood is very like, it's animalistic, but he doesn't turn into like a crazy demon. Yeah, yeah. he's just parched, <laughs> um, and it like it kind of unfolds in interesting ways. Um, but there are these little flashes of moments that are just like I, I'm sure that there were scenes in this that like the studio heads who eventually hired him for Mimic were like, oh, we if we give this guy some money, this is going to be really good. <laughs> um, there's a sequence in a bathroom. And all I will say is that there's a sequence in a bathroom that is largely shot in one take that even though it is low budget is just the perfect use of a, of a, of a long take. <laughs> um, and there's just lots of little tiny moments that work. And if you can get your hands on Chronos uh, through Filmstruck, mm-hmm. um, you can get it. You can get a two week trial sponsored by Filmstruck. Um, <laughs> you can get a two week trial and you can listen to the commentary because mm-hmm. it's, it's part of the criterion. Oh, um, you can hear a lot of Del Toro talking about like, for budget reasons, we would have done this differently, but we just had to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting to watch it from that perspective and still see where he pokes through mm-hmm. and shines through. Um, but it is by no means a like stone cold classic. It's a really good first film. It's impressive in a lot of ways, especially in its point of view and it's um, some of its ambition. Mm-hmm. But it's not quite like a I'm trying to think of, a, of an incredible breakout film like a. It's not Citizen Kane, for instance. It's not, well, which <laughs> well. is which is a pull quote for it's not the best movie ever made, but also the best first film ever made. Right, yeah. Um, but uh, I think that Kronos is an interesting one to watch, mm-hmm. even, even if it's not perfect. Um, but there are a couple of really, really strong elements in it. Um, and it's exciting to see how that kind of, how it continues to go throughout the rest of his career. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's interesting that he often you find in this in this film and in others his portrayal of violence that yeah. we've talked about a little bit. Huh? Um, he just has a very specific way of looking at people dealing with their injuries. I mean, I know a lot of people think of the scene in Pan's Labyrinth uh, when he tries to do surgery in the mirror. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, but like that, the way that that is photographed, it's something similar happens in Kronos. Mm-hmm. And okay. it's it's just like you took that version of it, threw a bunch more money at it, and this is how it happens in 2006. <laughs> um, so I, I think in that respect, it's a very interesting film. And Kronos is very like comically funny in place, like very like 
very weird in certain places. <laughs> yeah. And so if you if you're into Del Toro because you listen to his interviews and you're like, oh, he's a kooky weird guy, just every, every scene Ron Perlman's in is just like cheese. <laughs> Which can be said about the entirety of Hellboy as well. Um, exactly. Yeah. Uh, we, weird that he seems more outsized with no makeup on. <laughs> it's, it's very true. Um, and to your point of a logistical consideration or logistical hurdles sometimes being uh, kind of opening up the, the path to creativity, talk about the long take, the iconic long take in Goodfellas, the Copacabana scene was done because they weren't allowed to shoot in the main entrance. So like, how else can we do this? Why don't we do a long take going in the back way? And like, holy shit, you've made cinema history. No big deal. It's fine. Um, but, oh, and I remember the thing I was going to say about Crimson Peak. Turned out it wasn't actually about Crimson Peak, but it was going to be if I could have a, a late game entry into another film I'd like to see Guillermo del Toro make. Because I was thinking the whole time, like, based on the Gears thing and all this kind of stuff, is like, why hasn't Guillermo del Toro made a full-on steampunk movie? Um, and I was thinking, if there's going to be another attempt at a cinematic adaptation of the Final Fantasy video game series... Specifically Final Fantasy VI, which sort of exists like in a steampunk world in which the summon monsters are kind of being like used by an evil corporation, like drained of their power. So it's like, this is everything that Gamalator would love. Please let him do that. Uh, I bet if you Googled, if you went to IMDb, there's probably a Final Fantasy thing that just says in development. Because he, <laughs> he also is a filmmaker that has more than any other filmmaker the most in development things on his IMDb page. Yes. Um, his, his, uh, his busyness is legendary. Right. Um, and I'm actually, I'm calling up his IMDb page right now to kind of give you an idea. So his, uh, his last film was obviously, uh, the shape of water. Um, and these are the other things that are currently on his IMDb page. Um, the TV series, troll hunters, untitled Michael Mann documentary. Okay. Saturn and the End of Days, Pinocchio, Nightmare Alley, Monster, Fantastic Voyage, Drood, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And um, he is currently filming, or is starting, I think, tomorrow, um, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, I think yes, it's called. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah which, yeah. a draft was written by John August. I don't know if that's the current draft, but th that's also exciting. Um, and because those are the only ones listed on IMDb, I'm sure if you... That means there's probably at least twice that many. Which I think not. if you get an IMDb Pro account, you get a separate app that's just Guillermo del Toro titles <laughs> that you can cycle through. Um, uh, I'm trying to think. I, I think that pretty much covers Kronos. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I've seen this one a long time ago, but I'm basically kind of going into it fresh face because I, I remember very little about it. Now that you mentioned, though, I do kind of remember like when I watched it, like Ron Perlman seeming kind of out of place. Yes, his um, his character is also out of place in the story, but he leans into it more. Right. Which uh, which it very well could be a choice, but from my point of view, feels more like um Del Toro not having a full a full grasp on the world yet. Mm. And maybe just as as a director not being ready yet to tell Ron Perlman who probably at the time was the most bankable star. Federico Lupe was was a star in um the spanish-speaking cinema yeah so you know that was like working with at the time it was like working with um 
you know, James Cagney or something. Mm-hmm. Um, or a better example might be more like... <laughs> James Cagney was the actor you go to? It is It is 10 <laughs> o'clock at night. I am tired. I tried to pick something that wasn't recent so I don't sound like a 29-year-old. Okay. Um, Humphrey Bogart, if you want to go. Humphrey Bogart, Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy mm-hmm. Stewart could be a pretty good one. Okay. Um, so Federico Lupi was the Jimmy Stewart okay. uh, of the time uh, in the Spanish-speaking world. Back into Harvey from earlier. Hey, see, Guillermo works in ellipses, <laughs> elliptical. elliptical, and so do I. Yep. Um, but Ron Perlman was probably, in terms of like people that will make money for this, like yep. he, I think, because Beauty and the Beast was already airing at that time. Okay. So he might have been the, like that's our that's our star. And as a young director, it is very difficult to tell the most famous person on set. By the way, this isn't quite working. Yeah. Nope. Um, I get that. Might also not be true. Who knows? Um. And also, could you really tell Ron Perlman he's doing something wrong? No. Have you seen Ron Perlman? Yeah, no. <laughs> Ron Perlman could uh, crush my hand or crush my head between his hands. I don't think Ron Perlman has ever heard the phrase "um actually" in his entire <laughs> life. Uh, yeah, um, and all, um, fun little uh, tidbit: um, Beauty and the Beast. Uh, George R. R. Martin was a writer on that TV show. Oh, hey! Mm-hmm. Look at that. Yeah. Um, have you ever seen? Ron Perlman in a John Carpenter's Masses of Horror installment pro life. I have not. He's intimidating in that one. He's, he's intimidating in that one. <laughs> he, there's a sequence. It doesn't go into detail, but we're basically um, he cuts open a doctor's rectum with a scalpel and inserts a tube meant to suck out parts. Of, it, it happens in an abortion clinic, so he shoves that into the doctor's then open rectum and. This aired on it. Disney, right? What's that? It aired on Disney, right? Uh, uh, freeform. Okay, yeah, good. So otherwise known as ABC Family. Mm-hmm. Um, but okay, so to recap, we have Sean's favorite Devil's Backbone. We have Crimson Peak, which I uh, didn't know what to expect. And then we have Kronos, which was Guillermo del Toro's uh, directorial debut. Um, and I like that because I kind of like, okay, now that you know what del-, del Toro is like, here's how you can kind of see the seeds that were planted kind of thing. I like that approach. He's, yeah, he, he's sort of one of those filmmakers who often is operating at his full capacity. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to watch what happens. Like, where, where does that start? Right. What does that look like? Mm-hmm. Um, well, Sean, people have been listening to us now for uh, nigh two hours. I'm sure they're, if they haven't tuned out already, they really want us to wrap up. So we should probably do that. But before they do, if people have thought... This character sounds interesting. I want to know more about him. I want to see his work. I want to know more about Sean Meehan. How can they do so? Okay, uh, sure. They can. Um, so my the work that is publicly available is on CrossRiverPictures.net. Mm-hmm. Um, that's mostly the corporate and commercial type stuff. Um, and my Instagram is fun at Sean One Meehan. Jim will have the spelling. I, I out there it's not the Guillermo del Toro way it's, nope. it's not it's spelled the opposite of that <laughs> um those are probably the best places to find me mm, and uh it, this is up to you if you want to reveal it but Sean's dog also has an adorable Instagram account oh that's true and he has a lot of followers yeah Sean has a as a corgi puppy <sighs> a corgi puppy who watched Crimson Peak this morning so my dog saw Tom Hiddleston's ass <laughs> Which is Nemo the Corgi Pup on Instagram. And, oh my god. Yeah, he's real cute. He's real cute. He's, yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's real cute. Is, is, does his account have more followers than yours? Oh yeah. Well, I, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a working imaging professional who spends <laughs> a lot of time trying to make things look good. And he has four times as many followers as me. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. 
Um, and of course, um, if you want to keep up with the podcast, you can follow I Do Movies Badly episodes on idomoviesbadly.podbean.com. You can catch up with back episodes on iTunes or go to battleshipretention.com under the podcast drop-down menu, find I Do Movies Badly. Everything is there. Uh, and of course, I'm trying to, uh, I, I'm going to try to be better moving forward about posting more stuff on the I Do Movies Badly Facebook page, which is just go to Facebook and search for I Do Movies Badly. Um, not going to give you my Twitter handle. You probably already have it already, but if you don't, don't follow me on there. There's nothing worth being on there for. So, um, it's a bad website. What's that? It's a bad website. It's <laughs> that's true. But now, once again, this is coming. I, I forget how I'd wrap these things up. It's been so long. So I guess I'll just say, Sean, um, thank you for joining me to talk about Game of the Tour. This was, this was a, a wonderful conversation. Thank you for having me. I had a blast. kind of wrap it up. So uh, tune in next week where I'll be talking about uh, Devil's Backbone and where hopefully I'll be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.